Oh yeah. The Last Dance. Episode 7 and 8. Let's recap it. Let's talk about it. It's backdoor cover. Hit the high porn. Let's go. Oh yeah. What's happening? It's Micah. It's Brad. We're back. What's up, Micah? What's up, Bradley? How are you? You know, it's another beautiful day. Another recap day of The Last Dance. Yeah. We're still in quarantine hell, but at least we have The Last Dance to get us through. Uh, other other things that I have to get me through. It's one thing and one thing, most importantly. Ooh. I'm in a great mood today because I just crushed my 30-minute personal record. It's PRville, baby, here on Peloton. Hashtag bad boys of Pelly. Come join. What's PRville? Personal record, bud. Oh, I see. I always I'm visiting just, uh, a place I've never been before. Personal records. Every time we hit the personal record... Will and I just send gifs of Puerto Rico and Puerto Rican flags and J-Lo to each other back and forth now. I like that. So, uh, I don't understand the, to, the relevance, but I like it. Shout out to hashtag bad boys of Pelly. I am team follow back too. So if you if you hit that hashtag, you will get followed by me. Feel the excitement. Are you going to tell us what your time was or what? Oh, it's not really a time. It's like a score. And uh, What was your score, Micah? I, I don't know exactly. It was it was uh, three. What was it? They call me Mister Three Hundred, but it was it was a little bit higher than that. Thank you. Damn it! I was I was just building that up this whole time so I could blast a high point, and you don't even know what your personal record is, Micah. Come Sorry, on now. It, well, it is now three twenty. Bam! Breaking my future or my former record of three thirteen. All right, that, this is definitely appealing to our to three people that listen to this podcast that know what Peloton Hashtag is. bad boys of Pelly. I will follow you back. All right. All right let's go. Let's talk about The Last Dance. Um, Brad, before we start, did you watch any of the cage fights Saturday? No. I uh, I wanted to, and I saw that guy get his eye cracked open, and then I immediately fell asleep. I don't know what's wrong with me. I think I'm getting old, uh, and I'm I'm in quarantine, all sorts of things here. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't end I up paying, thank God. It. Well, yeah, yeah, you were supposed to come hang with me. I was going to come over, but I, some someone who I live with that kind of put the squash on us. Charlie? So was it Charlie? Bad. Yeah, it was Charlie the dog. That's what I thought. Uh, so it was Ralph's birthday. It was his second birthday, and um, I celebrated. I had some beers, and uh, I fell asleep <laughs> at about 8 p.m. It was, uh, it was great. Blew up the well, baby pool. It was a really good Saturday. Way to go. Since mm-hmm. I've already been exposed to Will to Freeze, I managed to... Uh, convince caitlin to let me watch the fights with him six feet apart um oh now i'm and, offended uh, it was, uh, yeah you should be i i was really pushing to come watch him on your patio outside because i've been sending her all this information about how you're much less likely to pass it if you're outside uh-huh blah 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 but she was not having any of it and she said she won't give me a ride and there's no way i'm trying to get an uber because yeah. you know I'm going to be drunk at midnight coming home from that thing. So well, you know, Will is probably the cleanest, one of the cleanest guys. Like he's a he's a candle guy. Like oh, at least yeah. I shouldn't be that offended, but I'm just a little I'm a little offended. That hurts my feelings. I'm offended for you. I'm I'm really disappointed. I wish it would have worked out. But okay, um, well, maybe next time. Great night of fights. Uh, we may talk about it later this week. I think you know we'll see if we can get another backdoor cover. I, I there was a lot to talk about. The fights were awesome. Mm. One of the best cards. It was weird uh, and cool to see the fights without any crowd. You could hear the corners. You could hear the announcers. One of the fighters said that like he changed his strategy mid midway through because he heard Daniel Cormier say something who was announcing the fight. Huh. Uh, which is pretty fucking wild. Where was Cormier sitting? Like just ringside announcing? Yeah, they, they were all cage side, but they were like on different sides of the octagon. 
Interesting. And then it's a Joe Rogan just totally fucking shameless, like no gloves, no mask, just rubbing all the fighters, doing the interviews, getting as close as possible to him. Do we like, know if he has antibodies? Has he already caught the thing? Well, they tested everybody and before the fight. And yeah. one of the fighters did test positive and, and was unable to fight. Oh, you're shitting. So, yeah, yeah. So of the 16 fights, 15 of the fighters tested negative. But uh, one did test positive, and they just kept going without him. Did he lose it's, by default? Uh, I, I don't know what what the circumstances were, but apparently his two corner men who came with him were also positive too. So good lord, this disease—it's such or a virus. weird, it's such a fucking weird deal. But uh, Joe Rogan apparently not afraid. So uh, yeah. Anyway, it was a great night of fights. There was some some good stuff, but that's not what we're talking about today. Today, here we are, uh, five minutes into this episode, <laughs> to talk about the last dance. Let's go. Episode seven and eight last night. Um, You've been following along. I won't kind of kind of leave. Um, no reason to recap where we've been. Episode 7, uh, perhaps the most memorable hour in my mind. This is the, I think like if you only had one hour of documentary to watch, mm-hmm. like if someone came from another planet and never heard of basketball, and you said, or somebody's not a basketball fan, never heard of Michael Jordan or whatever, mm-hmm. and you said, like, you can only watch one hour of these ten, I think you want them to watch episode seven. That's my prediction. Hmm. Because just the sheer insanity of uh, Jordan's level of celebrity, mm-hmm. his retirement, him playing baseball, and then him coming back, like, just that that hour is the craziest chapter of his career. And the father's murder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So uh, I murder, think I I agree with you the in conspiracies, that. All that stuff. I think it would. It's the most mass. It it would appeal to the largest group of people because it has everything in terms of drama. It has kind of like the the murder mystery stuff to it. It has the ups and downs of fame. It really does hit all the kind of high points in of reality TV and kind of you know good documentary making. As a sports fan, like I said, I really just liked that. I think it was episode four or five, whichever one was with the sponsorships and with his, like, his pettiness, how he was, whichever one it was, that was my favorite, but I'm with you, though. Yeah, I just think that, like, if you had to do a one-hour Jordan documentary, yeah, that's... This is the most action right here, yeah. Um, Yeah, from a non-basketball perspective. Exactly. And from a basketball perspective, but yeah, uh, pretty wild stuff. So, seven is, is really, really something. So you think it was yours personally? Was it your favorite episode? I, it was just the craziest. That's yeah. that's what I would say. Uh, you know, one thing that's been sort of crazy about this documentary is we haven't heard one word about Jordan's marriage, about yeah. his any of his children. Like they've all been totally ignored. There's been one um, scene where they're like bouncing a basketball at like an international game, like in episode one or two, and that's really the only sort of glimpse you even get into Jordan's personal family life was his two kids but yeah no mention of marriage or any of that and what was he married like 20 25 years something i don't know it was a long time um, so we basically start with the the end of the last episode kind of showed jordan retiring or or winning that third championship leading up and to then leading up to the, the his first third championship and then this talks about uh they show it basically starts with his father's murder and some of the conspiracies that are built around it, including, you know, Jordan's gambling addiction and the things that I put addiction in quotes, whatever. 
This, um, sh- this shit is very confusing to, to recap, by the way, because of their future and pasts bouncing backing, back, back and forth. It is thing, a little whatever. tricky, yeah. It's kind of, yeah, it, I, I, I feel for you when you're trying to kind of set the stage up here and describe kind of what happened as we go into the episode because there's just so much back and forth in time and, like, there's two different retirements and there's two different three-peat runs and there's all this different stuff that kind of gets jumbled. But I think you're doing good work here. So, thank you. Like you were yeah, saying. Yeah, so, so we get... We get the, the the details of the murder. Uh, we get some of the conspiracy theories around it. Yeah, you know that. I think everybody's kind of heard some of that stuff. You know, I, I didn't know all of the details about I didn't what happened. That he was found kind of in his car. His car was vandalized off in the side of the road. I think they said he was charged. found in a river because they had shot him in his car and then put him in a river. Yeah, something right, real right. gruesome, real, 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 like messed up, man. Stuff that it's, it's just like. Oh, that is that's a crazy thing to have happen, especially to the most famous person in the world. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, so you, you see that, but then what I didn't, you know, I didn't really know how close Jordan and his dad were. James Jordan, uh, how close he was. You know, you you always see the video of him with Michael, like holding the trophy after yeah. the championships. But they really talked about how they were like friends and how they fueled their hunger and how his dad kind of gave him a, an ultimatum. Uh, when Jordan said, I got suspended three times in one year, my father mm-hmm. pulled me aside and said, you don't look like you're going in the right direction. If if you want to be doing all this mischievous stuff, you can forget sports. That's all I needed to hear. From that point yeah. on, it was tunnel vision. He was the voice of reason that always drove and challenged me. So you get this, you know, I had never really heard that story about mm-hmm. how close they really were. Well, um, and so the thing is, too, from the previous episodes, we saw the height of his fame and how he really, like, almost there was no one that he could relate to that he could resonate. Like the people he like hung out with were the security guards where he would throw quarters in the back of the building. So like it's the only place he could find peace. And I think that was part of what brought him so close to his father is that he could talk to him about just about anything. And, and, 100%. and you know what I mean? Like it made it more like a, one of the few personal non hysterical relationships in his life. So that just made it extra hard. Yeah, and to see the video that they did have of them being together and talking about that, it was, you know, and and then you also, we've seen what the picture of how physically and emotionally drained Jordan really was at the end of this run. And, you know, the thing that we don't think about now is, you know, all these guys now sit out back-to-backs. Nobody plays 82 games. Jordan played every game, and he was playing big minutes. Like, physically, you could, once you see this, you see why the guy was just wrecked. Yeah, uh, it, and then you know emotionally, it's pretty obvious too. When when you've got when this relationship is, you know, your dad is mysteriously mis- murdered. It's it's pretty fucking tragic. Good lord! And then on top of that, the fame. Bill Simmons has talked about this over the years many many times about the strain and the like demands of winning a championship, like for, on a team specifically, like all the way through the emotional and physical just demands of that. He talked a lot about it throughout like the Golden State run, and like this documentary really helped you see it through kind of Jordan and like how just desperately drained and exhausted and fatigued he was like leaving the uh the 93 finals when they three-peated and they also mentioned that like he, he was feeling that way in 92 before they even went to the Olympics and he is like man if it wasn't for that three-peat that I could be chasing like I'd I'd have retired in 92 so that's crazy yeah, that was the craziest quote. We'll get to that in a second, I think. Because that, to me, stood out. That may be the thing I remember most of this episode. Are you doing dishes um, right now? 
No, I just tightened uh, the cleats on my uh, Peloton shoe, <laughs> actually. Okay. Sorry. Oh, it's okay. Um, I thought you might be washing dishes, and I was going to say, hey, come on, buddy. Talking less So Jordan business, said that I had, after it was the third three-peat, or the first three-peat, I fulfilled my responsibility to the city, to the Bulls, to my teammates. I told Phil that I'm about done. I have no more challenges, no more motiv- motivation. I was done. Uh, Phil did not p- push back. By October 93, Jordan had decided to retire. Uh, the the clip of this was one of the awesome things too, of all of the news reports that they showed mm-hmm. of Jordan at the the White Sox playoff game throwing oh, out the yeah. first pitch and then like during the game the, the word breaking that he's the Bulls have a retirement thing and Jordan having to like escape in his his Mercedes driving off it was it was crazy could you imagine if that happened today no like this is just so bananas so bananas um. And then they show the press conference where there's, uh, they said at least a hundred reporters and three hundred or three hundred reporters and a hundred cameras, including you've got Tom Brokaw, the the host of the nightly news, just posted up there in a practice gym in a Chicago suburb, um, next to Jordan, his wife Jackson Kraus, Reinsdorf, and even uh, David Stern, where he says, you know, that's where Jordan declares his intention to retire the first time at thirty. I mean, jeez. Yeah, you know what else was really weird? The whole thing about Jerry Reinsdorf owning both the Bulls and the White Sox. And mm-hmm. so, like, Mike, Michael never really left his employment. Like, he left the Bulls to go play for the White Sox. I thought that whole baseball scene was really interesting, too, because I never really followed his baseball career, like, kind of the ups and downs he had. Um, and they, uh, the part where they talk about how he, he can't hit a breaking ball, man, it reminded yeah. me of Elgar's so much. <laughs> I laughed out loud. I was like, "Damn, Elgar's must just be shaking his head. He must really resonate with MJ because he could crank, a, he could hit the uh, fastball. He went on like a 13 game hitting streak, and the league realized it. And they're like, just throw this guy breaking balls. He can't touch him.' And then there's like touch him. pictures of him missing him by like two feet and stuff. It was it was Elgar's all over. It was hilarious. Yeah, the it was uh, Reinsdorf came out and said that he just kept paying Michael his basketball salary, which was interesting. <laughs> Well, I mean, they were uh, saying there, he was selling out like of, little league or double uh, A ball parks and stuff. Like it was still he was making money off it, but not yeah, that, that kind was interesting. That was interesting. Well, I mean, I I assume the double A team owner made the money on that. I don't I don't know how the the economics I don't either. of minor yeah. league baseball. So we, it's I. best we not speculate. But you know, <laughs> there was a thirty for thirty called Jordan rides the bus like five or six, ten years ago when they first started those things, mm-hmm. and. You know that was always funny that Jordan was just like handing out meal money, and that he bought a he bought a bus for the team that I think like the Birmingham Barons still use. That's like hilarious. Just, they were like on a dirty school bus, and he was like, "Well, fuck this! I'm buying a million dollar bus for the team, so at least we can travel well." Uh, I liked but it was throughout that year to see, too. Uh, oh yeah, go ahead. It was just interesting to see him in the locker room, like playing ping pong and having fun, like just with these dudes. Like exactly, it, it, was, it was a weird. I mean, like it seems weird. Uh, and and that playing minor league baseball would be like a low pressure environment for him compared to everything else, even though it's a it's a zoo every time he leaves, you know, goes to the ballpark. I mean, I you think they was, would be all staying in like Best Westerns and stuff, right? Because like most of these dudes are broke; they're just I mean, trying I'm to sure. make it to the league to the show. They, they definitely weren't staying in five star hotels. And <laughs> I mean, I remember when I was a kid, in the interest of full disclosure, like I don't really remember. I remember him playing. Right, I knew it happened. Round, but, I, I don't watch. really remember the big hubbub about about him retiring, mm-hmm. and 
I remember him playing baseball, and the thing that I remember is like I was I would collect baseball cards, and at the time, every pack of baseball cards mm-hmm. had at least like on the label it said like guaranteed to have at least one Michael Jordan card. <laughs> Because he was like such like him as a minor leaguer it was still the biggest sports story in the world. It's, right. it's so fucking crazy. It was really insane. Um, I also liked yeah. how he'd call Phil after games and like talk about like Scotty and those guys like while he's on the road with this baseball team watching the Bulls from a, a distance. That was kind of interesting. Did you get that? Yeah. Yeah. And then the uh, Jordan at the press conference, the biggest positive I can take out of my father not being here today is that he saw my last mm. basketball game. Yeah. That was sad. But he also said the word retire means you can do anything you want from this day on. If I desire to come back and play again, maybe that's what I want to do. So, like, he was all, it was, he left the door open. at the press conference. You know, the door wasn't closed necessarily. Um, yeah. And, and then one last thing, like, I, they, he, I don't know exactly what the quote was, but he mentioned it and, like, it kind of helps you kind of pers- understanding the closeness of his relationship with his father they had discussed him playing baseball like the summer before and and like mike's and his dad was like yeah you should go you know if that's your dream you should chase it and it was also his father's dream so like it just kind of goes back to that personal intimate you know relationship that they had and why it was so tough for him to lose him but i mean it obviously it was yeah the, tough the quote from father, jordan me me and my dad were debating about me playing baseball i said dad i want to go play baseball he was saying do it do it he got me started in baseball as a child. So, uh, and I mean, you, you would know, think that that's was... probably one of maybe two, three people he ever said that to before he'd made the decision to do it. You know what I mean? Like, it just yeah. kind of showcases how how close they were and why, like, really the the magnitude that murder had on his life. So tragic. David man. Stern uh, talked about sort of the, his quote: "The urban legend that I sent him yeah. away because he was gambling is ridiculous. There's no basis in fact whatsoever." This they did a good job. I thought they really of, did. They squashed illustrating it. like how many people were losing money because Michael Jordan disappeared. You know, huh. like they made it very clear that it wasn't in like the idea that that uh, David Stern would suspend him a year and a half is right. just so fucking bananas. Like, there's just no way that would have possibly ever happened because you know, it's he so stays, detrimental if to he the hangs league. Around, yeah. I mean, am I willing to believe that he'd get a five-game suspension or a million-dollar fine for gambling? Maybe, but, but like, there's no. There was he was a rising tide that was rising all boats. You know, Michael by himself. This segment, um, I kind of felt guilty watching this segment because I was I, even before we started talking about the last dance, like leading up to it, and I was like, I just hope they kind of go into this whole gambling thing and really like flush that out and that it's put out there. Like these things that have always been kind of back-end rumor, back-room rumors uh, that hadn't really been flushed out, and now it's like, they really squashed this thing. Like, they pretty much make me feel dumb for even thinking it, you know? Yeah, I mean, Did you not get that sense? I I mean, obviously, he has controlling interest and is able to, you know, produce and edit the direction the storyline goes in, but it was pretty convincing. Like, the the few quotes that they put on there was enough for me to Yeah, I thought they did a good job doing it. It wasn't too heavy-handed. Uh, right. Just being like, you're an idiot if you believe that. So, yeah, I thought it was. And, and you know, for me, the economic standpoint is what is always the clearest indication mm. that it just doesn't make any economic sense for Michael Jordan to be suspended for a year and a half. Like, that's just not something the NBA would have done. There's no right. reason to do that. Um, and you're right. I don't have the quote here on this recap, but where he that the anonymous sports writer guy, the guy who I didn't recognize, I had to, the, like the guy that cursed. No, the guy who said, like, 
he the guy who was like, yeah, I knew he was going to do it because he told me he was going to do it in 92. Uh, right after the dream team he just said yeah i'm gonna retire and go play baseball but i can't go this year because i gotta because he said something like because he wants a three-peat well he said um but he didn't say that he wants a three-peat he said magic and larry never won three in a row so i gotta do that first. exactly he didn't like, frame it, it the way i just said it it was so much yeah. more michael it was so on brand for something to him to say He's like, well, it, yeah, it, it wasn't like I've got to go win three in a row. Three in a row right. is what's driving me. It's like, no, nobody else has done like Magic and Larry had done three. So I got to go do that <laughs> just so I can prove what a fucking alpha I am. And then I'll walk away like that is. And, and I mean, I don't even know who that guy is. It, like they showed his name. The guy who made that quote. Yeah, they showed the guy's name at the end of the episode. And I still didn't recognize him. He's not somebody like it's not a famous NBA person huh. or, or writer or whatever. So it was it was very strange, but kind of hilarious. Um. Anyway, I thought that was very noticeable. The other thing that we get sort of towards uh, the second half of episode seven is Jordan coming back, and we get a little bit of this insight into what a fucking prick he was, or a jerk, or whatever you want to, you know, demanding. However you want to classify what he was to his teammates, uh, we see that, because we get uh, footage of him screaming profanities at his teammates in practice, roasting them after their poor performances, um... You know, calling people hoes and stuff. That was hilarious. This Will is Perdue. the part where he was just destroying that guy named Scott. What was his name? Scott. Uh, uh, you know who I'm talking about, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll, let's see. I'm sure. Who is here somewhere. supposed to be a really good player? I don't have any recollection of this guy. And Jordan just was slaying him because apparently he was too nice. He was like a super talented basketball player, but was just too nice, didn't have a killer instinct. And Jordan just molested this dude. I think we get more of that in episode. Um, why but I that's when that it really goes into like how much of a dickhead he is because well, he really sort of, went after that We get that a lot guy. of that in episode eight as well, so we'll talk about that here in a minute. But you know, he will Purdue straight up called Jordan asshole and a jerk who crossed the line multiple times, numerous times. He's a perpetual line stepper, as some might say. Uh, Jed Bushler uh, said the Bulls were afraid of Jordan. Steve Kurt made it sound like he was just hazing the whole team, basically. Um, and then Jordan, you know, is basically like more emotional talking about what an asshole he was, where he just says, winning has a price, leadership has a price. I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged. I earned that right. My it was teammates awesome. came after me, didn't endure all the things I endured. Once you join a team, you live with a certain standard of how I played the game. I wasn't going to take anything less. If that means I had to get in your ass a little bit, then I did that. Scott Burrell. Yeah. It's this guy's name, I think. And then you got this quote. You can ask all my teammates one thing about Michael Jordan. He didn't ask me to do one thing that he didn't fucking do. When people see this, they'll think, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. No, that's you. You never won anything. I wanted to <laughs> that win, was awesome. and I wanted my teammates to win and be a part of that as well. That I was mean, one of my favorite quotes from the whole thing. Yeah, it says, Jordan that's is striking you. an unforgivingly binary. Mankind is composed of winners who are willing to invest themselves completely and losers who aren't. He continued to assert that he never felt he had another choice. Quote, I'm only doing it because it is who I am. Seemingly revolted by any alternative. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, then don't play that way. And then he basically like gets emotionally overwhelmed and just like almost starts crying, just stands up and like take a break. Uh, <laughs> It was kind of a weird way to episode, I have to say. Uh, huh. Like, 
because it was clear this this was to me the whole thing in the entire uh seven hours we'd seen up to this point mm-hmm. the most obvious like uh jordan's the producer of this and like we're gonna get his it's not as his much B-roll about telling the story as it is about telling his story letting him mm. tell his story the way he wants to tell it is that what you thought that's what i thought like i hmm. I, I love the quote okay i love it but that's the quote's not the incredible that, and it was incredible and it tells you a lot about jordan but I just thought, like, if I was making that movie, that's, I'm not going to let him just say that without being challenged. Now, in episode eight, we get a lot of other, we see a lot of evidence of, of him being an asshole, and we get the Steve Kerr stuff and the Scott Burrell stuff. Um, a couple things that popped to mind during this, mm-hmm. for me, uh, Caitlin, who I was watching it with, uh, was clearly, like, several times in this episode, just goes, mm-hmm. this guy's a psycho. Yes, like he he's just true. a psycho, and <laughs> which is true. And, and then there's a couple other things. One is I thought it was masterful of the way Jordan and the Jordan camp or whoever, like the week leading up to the first episode, like they floated something to the media that Jordan was concerned about how he was going to look. When in reality, I don't think most people. I think most people look at this and go like, "Wow." Like no wonder we were we're so fascinated by this guy. I don't think people said like this guy's a huge asshole. I've lost all respect for him. I think he like tempered people's expectations that he was going to look worse. And then you see the video and you're like, ah, oh, well, this guy's a, an alpha and a psycho. But like, it doesn't make me lose respect for him. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, mean, I think that people that are sports fans are like fucking hyped about this. Like hearing this like makes them love Jordan ten times more. Like actually seeing him demand this of his teammates. Like they're the people that like this kind of thing think strongly of them, and the people that are like a little overwhelmed by the macho ness or whatever, like think, ah, oh, it's not that bad. This I don't is know. just That's the way I looked at it. It's the controlled message that's always been put out about Jordan. It is he's this psychotic competition, competitive guy. Like he's the one who kind of set the tone that that's what athletes should be. Is if like at the very highest level is this super competitive, only cares about winning mindset, right? I, I don't. I can't think of anybody else who really personifies that as well as he does. But that's been the narrative, like, since the, Be Like Mike and all that stuff came out. Like, all these marketing things came out about Michael Jordan, like, in the 90s. Like, it was always about psychotically competitive basketball and, like, that's what people respected. I think that's what Jordan wanted people to believe that he was. So it's not that surprising that that's what this ended up being, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, it's something that I have talked about a lot on podcasts over the years is that these dudes, Jordan, Tiger, I mean, Bill Belichick, whoever you want to pick, like these aren't normal, well-adjusted people. Like these are psychos. These are, and you know, I mean, you could pick fortune 500 CEOs or whatever. This is, this guy is a psycho. Like he's sick. He is so fucking physically and, and just emotionally driven to dominate. That this is like he is a sociopath in a lot of ways. Like this is not a well-adjusted human being. This is not healthy human behavior. And you know, I I read something today that said, you know, that that some people are going to watch this, and if you look at kids watching basketball, they're going to think, well, this is the way that you've got to you've got to lead. There's no other way to do it except to just give to crush all your teammates and and be a monster like this. Okay, but. The stats show that that may not be true. Like it may, it, it's certainly the way that Michael had to do it. There's no doubt about that. Because like it's clear that he wasn't going to be able to put his arm around people the Scotty way. 
you know and and then you also have you know it might be a little short-sighted just to think that this is the only way to lead a basketball team is to just fucking berate and run all over your your teammates and stuff because it also discounts the fact that they as they talked about Scottie Pippen is the put your arm around the guy kind of mm-hmm. leader and mm-hmm. you've got Phil Jackson who may be the greatest coach and the mo- the most mindful like zen you know Phil was never necessary. He can work with so many different personality types. He was right? so much more about coaching people than he was coaching basketball, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, he he's famous for having the, the triangle and all that stuff. But it's also, you know, he he knows how to handle people. Collaborative uh, this, effort. Tom Ziller. Getting a team wrote, to work, right? Yeah. And knowing how to pick people up. And so, like, you've got that counterbalance to Michael tearing people down that – the second best player is going to come put his arm around you and your coach is going to find the best way to get that person to play. And, it, you and know, it shows... They have, like, parts where, like, Phil would go to Michael and be like, hey, man, you need to go apologize. Yeah, even when <laughs> Phil had to tell him to, to tear it down. So here's... Uh, I'm reading now from uh, Good Morning Basketball. This is mm-hmm. a, a Good Morning, It's Basketball. It's a newsletter from Tom Ziller. It's excellent. I would suggest you okay. check it out. But uh, he... He, here's what he says. What goes completely unacknowledged in the documentary is that Jordan's central defense of his behavior, that it was necessary to get the most out of his teammates, is entirely bullshit. Here's a list of the best player on every championship team since Jordan's last win in 98. Tim Duncan, Shaquille, Kobe, Chauncey Billups, Dwayne Wade, Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowitzki, LeBron, Kawhi, Curry, Kevin Durant. Of those 11 superstars whose teams have won the last 21 championships, only two, Bryant and Garnett, share Jordan's insane leadership style. And that's being generous to include Garnett, who is more of a bully to small European opponents than to his teammates. Oh, come on. Now, this isn't to say that any of those players aren't great teammates. I'm sympathetic to arguments that playing with LeBron is quite di- uh, difficult because of his ball dominance and the constant fear of being traded. But there's simply no evidence that for a superstar, getting the most out of your teammates requiring bullying them to, the, to get... Uh, bullying them to give maximum effort. Frankly, it's not remotely debatable. Look at the list. Tim Duncan, he was the best player on four championship teams. By every indication, he was the sweetest superstar teammate ever. You could argue that Duncan was the feather and Popovich was the hammer, but Jordan isn't arguing that someone had to ride the players hard. He's arguing that he had to or the Bulls wouldn't succeed. And yet, the Spurs won five titles with Duncan and four with him as the best player on the roster. And he also says, like LeBron, there's evidence Kevin Durant is a difficult teammate, but not uh, at all in this way. A team led by a quiet Durant and a sweet Steph Curry, the 2017 Warriors, may have supplanted Jordan's 96 Bulls as the best ever. Explain that with Jordan's theory of leadership. And he also goes on to talk about if you go back before Jordan, it wasn't true. Um, You know, that, that... Larry and Magic never uh, rode their teammates like Michael Red. Well, uh, the thing is, his Kareem. You go all the way back in basketball. Akeem never uh, fucking just harassed Kenny Smith. So it's all it's interesting. That leadership style only works if you're the best. You have to be by far and away the best at your craft. And Michael was pretty early in like into this run was pretty clearly the best in the league, if not the best of all time. Like after the three peat, like that was the conversation. And he had another three peat after that. And like, you have to have that type of dominance to be able to have that type of leadership. Cause otherwise, like, like he did say, like he held himself equally accountable and really like, it's not like you could do that unless you were like 
hands over, like head over heels, the best. Does that make sense to you? Like, I don't think that that type of leadership works unless you are. Yeah. The well, clearly uh, the dominant player. Okay. Let me read a little bit more of this because I think it's really good. Letting mm-hmm. Jordan claim unchallenged the Bulls won six championships in eight years, even in part because Jordan was an asshole to Scott Burrell and Horace Grant and punched Steve Kerr in the eye and struck fear into Jed Bushler and Bill Winnington, it doesn't pass the smell test. Why did the Bulls win all those championships? Really? Really? Because Jordan was the greatest player of a generation, probably all time, because Pippen was a legitimate superstar and a tremendous fit along MJ, because Jackson's one of the greatest coaches ever, because Jerry Krause assembled a high-level supporting cast. Spoiler alert, but we all know the 1998 championship did not rest on Scott Burrell's shoulders, despite no, uh, despite his one good game against the Hornets. Uh, Jordan calling Sk- Scott Burrell a hoe all season didn't turn <laughs> Scott Burrell into a stone-cold killer in the postseason. It just didn't work. But, well, this is, hey, it did make him a minor celebrity briefly in the year 2020. So that's something. And then this last quote, oh, and we'll also just stop okay. reading from other people's stuff. But uh, Burrell, that Burrell, Kerr, and everyone else involved in the documentary lets Jordan get away with this claim unchallenged is really a disservice to Jordan's legacy. If it results in a resurgence of asshole team leader tendencies among the impressionable kids watching this documentary, that will have been a real unfortunate turn of events. And I would imagine that is likely. You know, the other thing that I thought watching this is like I couldn't stop thinking about Kobe because Why? no other player has like Kobe, especially like the end of Kobe's career when he was on those teams with fucking JaVale McGee and and uh, Swaggy P and those fucking clowns. And like mm-hmm. he was just so angry all the time. Like it was mm-hmm. just clear that and he sort of trademarked it. He talked about it. He called it the Mamba mentality. But all he was doing was was copying Jordan every step right. of the way. You know, like that was that was the playbook. But Jordan never. This is the first time we've ever heard Jordan talk about this, like why, how driven he was, and how you know he had to do this, and he couldn't give a fuck if you weren't on board with him. Like Kobe at the end of his career, like just embraced being an asshole, called it the Mamba mentality, trademarked it, sold it, made it his image. But this is this is just the Jordan playbook all along. I I found I don't know. I kept thinking about Kobe the whole time when I was seeing some of this stuff. So many parts of that thing that you just read rubbed me the wrong way but i i first of all the thing that he's totally discounting is the experience and of of the practices and of the lead up throughout the entire season the preparation so that you're in position everyone on that team is prepared to react a certain way when they reach the playoffs when it's in the highest possible pressure situation and it's kind of the same thing with Tom Brady they talk about how he practices and prepares and how he throws a bazillion balls to his receivers and does all these different things that can't be discounted enough and Jordan being as much of a psycho and this like alpha leader that you kind of described there like even looking back at like him playing 36 holes of golf and then going and dropping 54 in a playoff game like it's the extremes like the 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 far whatever you want to call it, the the monumental investment in getting better over the long haul to get the entire team on the same page. And I think that absolutely played roles in them being successful in the playoffs and, and getting players that were probably mid-level to put in starring roles, whatever, starring performances in those playoff games and in the regular season games. Well, and but, I mean, they all had swagger, that, too. That intensity and that insanity, too. Probably it, let him to retire it, the first time, you know, and the second who, time. Like that what he's writing right he's there is burning the candle at both ends like this. That guy sounds like someone who's never played sports before because you don't understand how much 
it influences your game, the people you play with. And when you play with someone who's just that kind of a supernova star, that changes you. Like that changes who you are and how you play and what you do and how you prepare and your day-to-day well, operations. That's the argument. The argument is that he didn't have to be a fucking dick to his teammates and call them hoes all the time. But that was just part of his process. I don't know. I I just, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I totally agree with it. I just I thought it was an interesting counterpoint Hmm. uh, to a narrative that Timmy is the exact opposite. Like he said, that's for sure. Well, then you 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 must be enjoying the documentary, uh, as am Hmm. I. Um, We also there's still a lot more stuff that happened in episode seven. We're going long as shit, but we'll get to it. We get all the baseball stuff where, Mm -hmm. you know, Brian Storff said that he's still paying Jordan his NBA salary but that he should have gone to rookie ball or or single A, but that mm-hmm. none of those lower-level affiliates could handle the media crush that followed him, so he had to go play double A. He started the season with a 13-game hitting streak, as you said, and then pitchers just realized he couldn't hit a fucking curveball, so they just started throwing him uh, curveballs all the time. Uh, there was the great thing where there was the Sports Illustrated cover that said Baggett Michael, where he's missing a, missing a curveball by like three feet. Michael and, was uh, so pissed that Jordan never talked to Sports Illustrated again. <laughs> Just fucking, that's hilarious. What a fucking psycho! Uh, and then it is amazing that Terry Francona was his manager at the time. That was the most shocking. I had no idea. Oh, I'm sure I I'm an idiot. That, I'm sure I, everybody knew that, but I had no clue. I knew that, but it was always kind of like kind of an obscure trivia question. Um, who you know? It turns out that this guy who had Michael Jordan, who nobody had ever heard of before, ends up breaking the Red Sox hundred year streak and winning two world series and becoming like this legendary player or this legendary coach yeah Um, he talks about jordan hitting uh 202 and 51 run rbis uh they talk more about his work ethic though and that's the part yeah that that was was more interesting interesting. yeah Yeah. and they showed the one home run that he hit which (laughs) uh i just thought was funny that that we got to see that video when in reality he hit one home run but whatever um Obviously, he probably wasn't going to be a power hitter. Um, the other thing that we got in this episode that we didn't talk about was the the Scottie Pippen incident when uh, mm-hmm. when he goes out of the game um, in in the the one playoff season Michael misses. Uh, uh, what's his name? Phil draws up a play for Tony Kukoc, and Scottie refuses to check into the game. And what a what a what a just kind of a, a big thing that was. Um, it was weird how like everybody reacted and then I don't know like and even Jordan was like that's going to be a smear on his career for the rest of his life and and all of these different things and like I feel like right now if somebody did that in the NBA it, people would be like eh diva like okay uh, I don't know I mean I do think it's just like obviously it's not a great look but it's I a mean, really famous moment it's like one of these yes. things it's, it's not because he won six championships but it's in the second paragraph of his obituary, you know, mm. like when people talk about Kobe Bryant now, well, maybe it's in, the I don't third think it's in, I think it's I, like in the third paragraph, but maybe, okay, maybe, go ahead. I mean, well, they, they probably also talk about his, his crazy ex-wife who's been on basketball wives or real housewives <laughs> or whatever. That's probably up there now too. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it's an unfortunate thing, but he also like sort of didn't apologize. And then they talked about how, Kukoc said, like, how happy he was to make the shot, but then the whole team was, they go back in the locker room, the whole team's fucking pissed off. Even right. though they just won a, won a game at the buzzer, and Bill Cartwright broke down in tears and started yelling at Scotty in the in the locker room. Um, exactly. That was kind of crazy. Seven games. 
there's a story that I keep hearing Jackie McMullen, the uh, sports writer, uh, tell on podcasts that she went, she was working at the Boston Globe at the time, but went down to Birmingham to talk to Michael when he was playing baseball. And he showed, she showed up the day after the Scotty game and she, but she like couldn't get a hold of Michael. She didn't know if he was going to talk to her at all. Like they couldn't get through the, the mm-hmm. PR people or whatever at, at Birmingham. So she just kind of like shows up one day at, at batting practice and she sees Michael like striding over to her from the outfield, like coming straight to her. And she, and she said that Michael just walked up and goes, can you believe that shit they did to Scotty yesterday? And so like, <laughs> she was like, she was like, I knew right then he's coming back to play. The huh. the one thing seeing Michael play baseball that's interesting is just like what a fucking unbelievable athlete that dude is. Yeah. Like just just watching the way that he runs and like and even when he came back wearing 45 like he's so charismatic it's there's just something about him athletically that you know he's clearly the prototype. You you just It's a bizarre mix of of like agility and grace with power and like he just never looked like he would tip over like he'd be turning at these uh, like almost bizarre like angles when he's like running past people and stopping on dimes and then going up into the air it's just it really is like you said it's like a beautiful thing to see like that athletic prowess that ability is just otherworldly the way he sort of floats it's it's really it still is amazing and you know i mean i've seen it when you see when you know if you've seen lebron play in person he he's the same kind of just unbelievable like specimen uh, like watching a lion run through the jungle or something like just yeah, the but way the difference with LeBron is because he's so tall, like he's like six nine. Yeah, and Jordan and and he's so big and like muscular and you know even watching Jordan run those wind sprints in that in that part of that yes. episode, like he just is so he's like a gazelle. Yes, yeah, and even it's just weird to see a big six foot six dude playing baseball with a White Sox uniform on. The whole thing was so strange. Yeah. Um, all right, now that we've gone for forty one minutes, let's uh, see if we can get. <laughs> <laughs> episode eight done in 20. Um, Let's do it. They basically start episode eight with uh, his return from minor league baseball. He shows up in the 95 playoffs. Now, I've heard a lot of rumors this week. I've heard uh, Simmons has talked about how he thinks that Jordan realized that the that there was uh, the league had added a bunch of teams in uh, in expansion in like 90, mm-hmm. 92, 93. And he, he just realized like the league was weak. And that I could come back in '95 and steal a championship, uh, and that didn't end up. That's happening. what Simmons thinks. Yeah, that's what Simmons thinks. Like, hey, I can just sneak back in here halfway through the year, get hot for the playoffs, and and run through and steal the championship mm. because these the league is is diluted. Uh, that's not exactly what happens. He comes back. He's wearing 45. I do remember vividly as a child, like him coming back. The the I'm yeah. back fax that was faxed which is actually something I talked about on Mind of Micah a few weeks ago, if you're interested in uh, reading about what that was like. But then Mm -hmm. him coming back against uh, Indiana, playing on the Sunday game on NBC, and, you know, taking the game to overtime. He played, started terribly, I think he started 0 for 7, but then came back and just, like, you know, down the stretch started getting calls and making plays. They lost the game in overtime, but you saw it, and what a zoo that was to have him back how weird it is to see him play in 45 and not in 23 and then they kind of run you know i think he came back with 17 games left in the regular season and then they go to the playoffs they win the first round against cleveland i want to say uh but then you get against uh you get uh, the second round against orlando this is the up-and-coming orlando team with Shaq and and penny um and then 
the the thing that I did not remember is Nick Anderson saying after after the second game, I think, that number 45 is not number 23. And that just fucking made Jordan so mad that he just switched jerseys in the middle of the season. He shows up for game three wearing number 23 again. It's just fucking unbelievable. Nick Anderson was really good. I forgot how good he was. Well, he, he Nick Anderson's the one who missed the free throws against... Uh, yeah. Uh, against... Uh, against Houston and just his career died basically he missed four free throws at the end of I think it was game one of the 94 finals and just like never recovered mentally uh anyway that's a whole nother story uh the awesome stuff that I wish I could have more of was Jordan on the Space Jam set in Los Angeles yeah where they just built what they call it the Jordan Dome where he was like yeah hey I need a I need a place to work out and they're like no problem and Disney just fucking builds him like this badass indoor gym uh, with a full-length basketball court and workout materials and all that stuff. It was pretty amazing. You think that's what LeBron's doing right now? Because he's doing uh, Space Jam 2 or whatever at the moment. You think he's working out in his yeah. own Are they doing anything Jordan Dome? right now? With, uh, I wonder. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I'm sure... But I'm sure they'll have cameras rolling the entire time there. So when they make a LeBron documentary 20 years from now, we'll be able to watch mm. that. Like, are you telling me you wouldn't watch a space uh, games of '95 Space Jam documentary? For I sure. Would. Um, it was interesting that Jordan was like, one, I wanted to stay in shape, but two, I just wanted to scout the other players, which is fucking <laughs> hilarious. Um, and there was also the thing where he was talking to his trainer, and the trainer got emotional uh, after they lost to Orlando. And he said, you know, uh, Michael called him up and said, you know, uh, or he was like, when do you want to start training? You want to take a couple of weeks off? Kobe's like, or Michael was like, I'm coming in tomorrow. And how like his <laughs> trainer like got emotional, like just telling that it was ridiculous. Um, but yeah, they, they realized that they show up for that, that, uh, training camp and just got relentless. And then this is how we get the, to the, the famous Steve Kerr getting punched in the face story. Uh, mm -hmm. where they talked about how you got to feel like you're in the trenches. Um, and Jordan said, you know, I want them to understand what it felt like to be in the trenches. If you don't understand, then you're not going to respond when the war starts. Kerr and Luke Longley and those guys, they come in riding high on three championships, and they had no fucking thing to do with it. Uh, we were shit when I got to the Bulls. We elevated to a championship-quality team. They there were certain standards you had to live by. You don't come pussyfooting around, joking and kidding around. You have to come in ready to play. Jordan conveyed that message with tenacious play throughout training camp, but he lost control of his emotions during one practice session. Uh, he got mad. He tells a story about being, he calls Phil's uh, foul calls ticky-tack and then hits a, a hard foul on Steve Kerr. Kerr punches Jordan in the chest, and then Jordan just smacks him right in the eye as uh Michael says, I haul off and hit him right in the fucking eye. <laughs> Phil throws me out of practice. I'm in the shower like, I just beat up the littlest guy on the fucking court. I felt so small. And they said, I Psycho. called Steve. I apologize. Look, man, it had nothing to do with you. I feel bad. Which was, uh, which was pretty awesome. I mean, everyone has always heard this story that Phil or that Michael had punched Steve Kerr in the face. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd never actually really heard both of them sit down and talk about it. Right. Like what led to it, when it happened, all that stuff was pretty interesting. Uh, Kerr, of course, future president Steve Kerr, as I call him at my home, uh, <laughs> was, of course, extremely gracious and, you know, 
he said it, it was the best thing I or the best thing I ever did was stand up for myself with him. He tested everyone he played with. From that point on, our relationship and trust dramatically improved. Uh, we got that out of the way. We're going to war together. That season was the best team he'd ever been a part of. And then Jordan. Why do said, you call him the president? Because he should be our president. You like him, huh? Yeah, I would like him to run for president eventually. I got you. Okay. Yes. All right. Uh, Jordan said that Kerr earned my respect because he wasn't willing to back down and be a pawn in the whole process. Uh, and, he, you know, it, they talk about how Kerr actually received an apology, something that Jordan never gave Isaiah Thomas, Jerry Krause, or anyone else that he's been an adversary in the documentary. Uh, I bet Phil encouraged him to do it, too. Yeah. The, the apology, I mean. There was great stuff where Reggie Miller said that Michael was like a vampire. Uh, hmm. And they, they show the parallels between the 1990 summer and the 1995 summer, uh, where previously in 90 he had, he had sought to add muscle and bulk up because of the Pistons bruising style. In 95, he had to undo his baseball workouts uh, to improve his upper body strength. And then that's when he just started getting crazy in shape and balling. You know, they talked about how he was staying up all night playing bass playing ball for like three hours working out showing up to shoot space jam all day uh like that was pretty pretty dope he's a monster yeah oh and i guess we get more of you know jordan's comeback uh when he first comes back in 94 95 when he hangs 55 on the knicks at the garden and then uh he just you know then they show him making turnovers at the end of uh late games against um against Orlando and then uh, he said he was only at 80% fitness because of his rush return but then during Space Jam fielding Jordan was on set from 7am to 7pm with two hour midday break for weightlifting and nightly games of 5 on 5 pickups Jeez. which is so awesome I mean I just love that Warner Brothers like yeah we'll build you a Jordan Dome and then they just like all these players just flew out to LA to play in these games they showed Miller, Patrick Ewing, Chris Mullen Dennis Rodman and many other players out there playing these pickup games I want to watch Space Jam again and critique Jordan's acting ability because from what I remember, he was a really good actor in that movie, all things considered. I wonder if he really was or if I was just a kid, whatever. Do you remember? Do you think he was good? He played a, a solid role there? I, you know what? I don't think I've ever seen Space Jam. You can't be serious. I'm, I'm serious. I tried to watch it a couple, uh, you know, like a few months ago. It was on TV or something. Yeah. And the first 20 minutes were just so slow and boring. I just got out. I need to commit to watching it. I know people are going to be pissed at me for not watching it. Shame on you, Micah. I don't do cartoons, really. Uh, people were marveling at Jordan's around-the-clock habits. Jordan uh, says he was updating his scouting reports on the competition, getting his body back to 100%. That following season, Jordan played all 82 games. He led the league in scoring, shot attempts, usage rate, and win shares while playing more minutes than all but 11 players. Uh, Kerr said that Jordan came in in incredible shape, but he was also frothing at the mouth. That's how angry he was from losing. He talked a lot of shit. Then we get that 95 or 96, 97 team, whatever it is, the, the 72 win team where they go 11 and one, the first three rounds of the playoffs they are just wrecking people. And then there was, uh, they talked about the slights. I don't know if we got it in this episode or in seven, I think it was in seven where they talked about the guy who no one's ever heard of before or since who put up 37 on Michael and Michael was so fucking angry that he went to New Jersey the next night, put up 36 in the first half on him. 
Le Bradford Smith. Le Bradford Smith, and just made up the story about how Le Bradford Smith said nice game to Michael, where he never even said that. Like what a, <laughs> and that was one of those points where Caitlin was like, "What a psycho," <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, yeah," you know. The, there's that's all. There's always these infamous stories about Michael, like either just always having an enemy or inventing one. But I never heard that one before, and it was pretty great. Um, but then Jordan here in episode eight talks about how he's at dinner with Ahmad Rashad, and and George Carl doesn't even come over to say hello because they're at the same restaurant. Jordan says he walked right past me. Oh, really? That's how you're going to play it? It was a crock of shit. We both went to North Carolina. We know Dean Smith. I see him in the summer. We play golf. That's all I needed. For him to do that, it became personal. Uh, Jordan and the Bulls jump out to a 3-0 series lead. And uh, Gary Payton, who I'd like to see a Gary Payton documentary too, just says, Michael ripped a hole in our ass, which is a great quote. Uh, The Sonics win two games in a row. You know, Gary Payton taking credit for playing defense on Michael, as he should. I would, too, 20 years later. Like, what's – yeah. But, I mean, come on. That series is already over. Uh, and then they showed Jordan looking at the video of Payton pumping himself up and Jordan just laughing and laughing and laughing <laughs> and laughing and laughing. That was cold. It was great. I, I, I'd love to see a documentary of Jordan watching this documentary. Um, Jordan did actually play great in that series. But they win in six. Um, he went five for 19 in game six, only 22 points. The, but they, uh, they, they won that. I mean, that team was unstoppable. Yeah. Uh, and then that, this is another part that Simmons uh, specifically has said, that that 96 team was real. Like, yeah, they won 72 games, but there were a lot of games against um, expansion teams that year for whatever it's worth. I'll just yeah, the the watered down league. The other thing Simmons is doing lately that's kind of annoying me is he's doing like uh, scenes or not scenes. He's doing like the history of what's going to happen in the next episode of the Last Dance. Like he's doing it before it happens, as opposed to most people are watching it then recapping and talking about it. He's like going through Jordan's career the week before leading up to it, and it's kind of annoying me. Have you noticed that? Uh, the best thing you can do is just ignore Bill Simmons most of the time. That's that's true. That's a good point. Um, I, I I have been enjoying some of the stuff that he does with Rosillo on Sunday nights. They talk about the Oh, episodes. they're great. I think they're awesome together. Uh, anyway, Jordan, uh, the, we see Jordan winning the championship on Father's Day, uh, which yeah. is interesting. And then we see him just like retreating to an empty locker room and then laying on the floor and, and just sobbing uncontrollably and talking about what it was like and saying this is for daddy. Uh, pretty emotional, pretty good stuff. And that was episode eight. Is there anything else that we missed? I think we can, we might be able to get out of here in under an hour, Brad. I think that covers it, my brother. It was good. Uh, yeah, really good. I, again, I think seven is the best episode we've seen so far. Eight was good too. Um, I mean, obviously, spoiler alert, they're going to win the championship in 98. We're sort of <laughs> leading up to this, this, uh, seven game series in 98 against the Pacers, which is one that, you know, I'm going to be interested to see, you know, to hear from Reggie Miller and, and see this was really the closest the Bulls ever came to losing in these playoff runs. They never, I don't know. They didn't have many seven game series. I think they had one against the Knicks. Um, but this is the this is the one. So it, interesting to see. Uh, Here's I'm a quote. Looking forward to that. We felt I feel to this day we were bet we were the better team, says Reggie Miller, whose Pacers played Jordan's Bulls for the 98 Eastern Conference title. This whole thing is there were whispers. This was going to be Jordan's last year. So I think a perfect storm was brewing. 
And in my mind, I was thinking it is this, or this is it. You're going to retire, Michael Jordan. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Should be good. Yeah, that's coming up, episode nine. Uh, next Sunday. And uh, I told Coach Bobby he will be joining us. We'll run a three-man weave. Oh, that's weave. fun. We'll run a three-man weave next week and uh, break into it. My goal on Sunday is to watch all ten episodes. What? Yeah, I'm, I've got them on the DVR. I'm just going to hammer through all ten of them next Sunday. Hashtag Lazy Sunday. Wow, you're psychotic like Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. I can't wait. You're just you're just so um, you're so uh, committed to your craft. You're gonna watch ten straight hours of content you just watched. That's that's exactly what I'm planning to do on Sunday. Uh, but cool. you know, for, first of course, I'm gonna get on that Peloton. Hashtag Bad Boys of Pelly. Mm. All right, gonna get another PR. I sure hope so. That's it. Nice. That's all. We will be back uh, probably later this week. Maybe I don't know. Maybe some sports seems reasonable. Stuff will and uh, check out Mind of Micah. Uh, we broke down restaurant wars on uh, Top Chef last week. Good stuff. Until next time. Mm, bye bye. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>